0: Hello, readers. Randall Ballmer is a prize winning historian, the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth, and a published author of more than a dozen books. His newest title is Passion Plays How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Randall, thank you for the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm fine. Glad to be here. Thanks, Trey. It's
0: my pleasure and really looking forward to this conversation. This is a wonderful book exploring the histories of baseball, basketball, hockey, and football, and just their relation to what was going on in the case of three of them in America, in the case of the hockey, what was happening north of the border in Canada as well. So uh, how did the discovery of New York City sports radio in the early 1990s really pave the way for this book all these years later?
1: (laughs) I started listening to it. I was teaching at Columbia University at the time. And I started listening to sports radio, and I actually remember the the day that WNBC became WFAN, of course, the, the first very big sports radio station in the country. And I started listening, and I just became fascinated by it. I couldn't believe that sports talk radio hosts could sustain... Hours and hours of conversation over whether or not Joe Torre should have lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning, and what struck me was the passionate intensity that people brought to these issues. And uh, I have to say, I got I got drawn into it. I, I'm a sports fan myself. I'm not probably, you know, in the. Uh, in, in in the outer limits of that uh, that designation, but nevertheless, I'm a sports fan, and uh, I decided to try to write a book to to explain it.
0: So, why did you decide on these four sports then, Randall?
1: Well, the the four sports seem to me the, the the most established sports in terms of team sports at the at the collegiate and the professional level, and. It's also, I think, each one has its own kind of internal narrative. And that that attracted me a lot. I really like that idea of trying to understand not only the history of each individual sport, but the kind of internal symbolism that surrounds each sport that I think helps to explain each uh, the popularity of each one.
0: And you start with baseball, whose rise really began during the Industrial Revolution. It turns into a sort of countercultural representation of what was happening in America around the time of the Industrial Revolution. And of course, many consider Abner Doubleday to be the inventor of the game. And let's not get this wrong. Abner Doubleday was a badass. Two-star Union general in the Civil War, fired the first shots in defense of Fort Sumner, commanded the Union troops at the Second Battle of Bull Run and the Battle of Gettysburg. He actually patented San Francisco's cable car system after the war and was ultimately laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. But he is also credited with inventing baseball by uh, apparently drawing the field and the players into a patch of dirt with a stick. Why is the story likely the result of a raving lunatic, and what is baseball's origin story, Randall?
1: <laughs> well, I, the the problem with the story is that uh, Abner Doubleday never, in the course of his seventy-plus year lifetime, claimed credit for <laughs> for inventing baseball. And in fact, when baseball was supposedly invented in Cooperstown, New York, Abner Doubleday was a cadet at West Point, preparing for his his uh, Civil War. Career as a, a as a general, yeah. The what happens is that uh, A. G. Spalding, who is the head of the Spalding Sporting Goods uh, Empire, Empire, along with his brother, he was very very interested in insisting that baseball had American origins, that it was not descended from the British game of rounders or the Dutch game of stool ball or the other games that are usually cited as uh, precursors of baseball. And so he sets up what comes to be known as the Mills Commission to study the origins of baseball. And A.G. Mills, a former president of the National League, uh, sets out, uh, puts the word out that we're looking for narratives of, his, of the history of, of baseball, how, how baseball started. And there is a, uh, a mining engineer from Colorado by the name of Abner Graves, who was traveling through Toledo, Ohio at the time, and he saw this notice in the local newspaper there in Ohio, and he wrote in with his uh, Doubleday Cooperstown narrative. And uh, the the commission made some kind of feeble attempt to decide or determine whether or not this, uh, this uh, story had any credibility, but... Uh, they decided, despite the doubts of uh, Abraham Mills, the the commission, the head of the commission, they decided to go with that story, and uh, that's how this Cooper Town myth became uh, established. Uh, of course, the earliest evidence we have of baseball here in America is probably in uh, Pitts, uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts in 1791, where there's a town ordinance passed that uh, calls for or prohibits the playing of baseball and other games there by the meeting house because too many windows were being broken. That's probably the earliest reference we can have. But there's a a British children's book before that time that talks about uh, a little boy batting the ball and running around the bases and so forth. So, uh, you know, again, it's a contested story, but uh, most historians now dismiss the Cooperstown myth, despite the fact that the Baseball Hall, Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York.
0: I'm glad you mentioned baseball in Massachusetts because different iterations of baseball throughout the 1800s included some pretty interesting rules. For instance, what was soaking, which was a common part of Massachusetts' (laughs) version of baseball at one point in the 1800s?
1: (laughs) Yes, uh, soaking in Massachusetts. They also did that uh, up in Ontario, too. Soaking would allow the defensive player to, to field the ball and then strike and throw the ball at the runner between bases. And if he hit the runner running between bases, then the runner was considered out at the time. The other characteristic of the Massachusetts version of the game is that there were no ba- base paths so you could kind of wander all over the field from one base to the next you didn't have to necessarily go in a straight line so that was uh, one of the peculiarities of the of the early game of baseball
0: and i guess we should clarify that the ball that they were using for soaking was not necessarily the hard ball that we have become accustomed to with the modern game it was actually a softer ball as well thankfully didn't hurt nearly as much as today's ball would
1: no, and, and I didn't run across any indications of people, of uh, players uh, complaining about being injured by the, by the, uh, by being hit with a ball. So apparently it wasn't much of an issue.
0: And baseball did really continue to rise in popularity and, and started to take hold of this society during the industrial revolution. How was its rise in popularity tied to a social desire for working men to take better care of themselves?
1: Yeah, there was a whole movement in uh, 19th century Britain and then it comes over to North America that historians call muscular Christianity. And this was an attempt on the part of uh, Protestant leaders of of Christianity to couple faith and religion and piety with athletic pursuits. And the, and the, the fear at the time in the Industrial Revolution is that, first of all, men are beginning to work outside of the home, outside of the farms. They're no longer engaging in subsistence living. They're working in factories. They're working in sedentary office jobs. And the fear is that they're becoming uh, kind of soft (laughs) and lazy and even effeminate at the same time that women are more and more populating the churches and making the churches run. That is uh, doing all these volunteer activities and that sort of thing. So there was a push on the part of these Protestant leaders to try to re-engage men with the Christian faith. And one of the strategies for doing so was this muscular Christianity movement that tried to draw on the New Testament metaphors. For example, Paul talks about running the race and finishing the course. He talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Uh, he, He talks about all these athletic and military metaphors. And athleticism and militarism become very much part of this muscular Christianity movement, and uh, and, and and it does help to fuel the the rise and the popularity of all of these uh, team sports. Basketball, in particular, uh, would be an example of that because the probably the best example of muscular Christianity in the 19th century would be the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, which sought to uh, provide recreation and entertainment for young men, who many of them were newly moving to the cities as part of the Industrial Revolution and uh, needed uh, some sort of activity other than going to uh, taverns and brothels and that sort of thing. And so uh, the fact that basketball was invented by a student at the YMCA training school is a great example of muscular Christianity.
0: Yeah, we will certainly get to Dr. James Naismith's brilliance here shortly. First, though, why do you consider baseball a countercultural response to the Industrial Revolution other than what we just talked about?
1: Well, I think if you look at the, you consider the Industrial Revolution and the icon of industrialism is the clock. That is to say, during the Industrial Revolution, we as the human beings, as the human race, begin to turn away from the circadian ry- rhythms of the seasons and the days and begin to govern our lives according to the clock. So, for example, uh, in used to be in the in the wintertime, uh, we would sleep a little bit longer because the, the hours of daylight were were much shorter. So uh, people would sleep, uh, sleep in, sleep later, go to bed a little bit earlier in the evenings. And with the Industrial Revolution, bosses, factory owners, uh, office um, uh, authorities or bosses would begin to insist that you show up at a certain time. You've got to be at work by 830 or 8 o'clock, whatever it might be. So we begin to govern our lives by the the clock. And baseball resists that. Baseball says, no, we're going to be countercultural. And it is the only sport among the four major team sports that is not governed by a clock. So it rejects the icon of the Industrial Revolution. And as you think about the game of baseball, even the base runner runs around the bases counterclockwise as though he's trying to subvert the passage of time. So baseball is standing against the Industrial Revolution. And I think the other thing is, too, is baseball is... Is all about uh, you know, as the Cooperstown myth suggests, baseball is all, all about uh, uh, the rural, uh, the, the the idyllic sort of sylvan rural life. And even today, in you in, as you fly into major cities, major airports, what you notice is that set in among the ca- concrete canyons of the urban landscape, you have these big green fields and most of them are baseball fields or many of them are baseball fields. And this is just utterly unlikely because of urbanization. So baseball stands against the, the recording of the time but also against the urban landscape.
0: You know, interesting to think about, and I hadn't considered this while reading the book until uh, your answer just now, that baseball is kind of a response to the Industrial Revolution. Baseball perhaps has the strongest players union of the four major sports, which, of course, that's something that really came into effect at the turn of the century as workers really kind of woke up and realized that they needed to do more to fight for their rights versus allowing these companies to just continually exploit them, too that's right
1: yeah that's right exactly yeah and i i also make the point, uh, and and you were probably coming to this but uh, I'll, I'll anticipate it a, a baseball i think is the symbolically it's the immigrant game mm-hmm. because it's the only game where the defense controls the ball and it's the object of the offensive player the batter to disrupt the defense's control of the ball he's outnumbered nine to one And if he fails seven times out of 10, he'll probably go to the Hall of Fame. So that those are the odds. And those were the odds that were facing the immigrants as they came to this country in the 19th century. And they looked out on this alien landscape that was that was hostile to them. And they found only three islands of safety, first, second and third base, and of course, the greatest triumph for the immigrant as for the ball player, is to return home.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I also love you comparing baseball to the Garden of Eden. You just kind of touched on it there with the uh, pastoral setting in the middle of the city, just being able to escape and just go to this large field of grass where uh, oftentimes grown men are playing a child's sport. But what exactly is the game's serpent then, Randall?
1: Well, I think there are a lot of serpents over the year the, the years the black Scots, Black sox scandal, of course uh, more recently the steroids scandal or even the Houston Astros uh, stealing signs uh, electronically uh, in, uh, in in a huge scandal. Uh, uh, Pete Rose, the gambling scandal uh, all of those are I think serpents in the Garden of Eden. And I think purists would probably also say that the introduction of a clock which we're going to see next year in in, be- in major league baseball probably as a, as a form of the serpent um, rearing its ugly head in the in the garden of eden
0: yeah on the one hand i understand why baseball purists are so opposed to that but by the same token they got to figure out a way to speed the game up i mean people only got so much time to uh to sit around and watch nine innings of baseball so i think that's ultimately going to benefit the game but i don't want to see the clock become too large a component of the game yeah, that's right.
1: No, I, th- I think the real problem is the is the batters and the pitchers kind of preening themselves in front of the television cameras between pitches. I think that's the real problem. <laughs> but we'll see if this uh, this rules change will uh, will make any difference. But again, you know, we're living in an internet age, and so baseball has to make some sort of accommodations. It seems to me, um, an age of email and and uh, kind of instantaneous communication and baseball really hasn't kept up i think in a way that 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 it needs to at the same time you know i agree with you i think we uh, there's something sort of timeless about baseball which uh, I, I think is still very attractive
0: well i think part of the religiosity of baseball when i think about it is the fact that you do have so much downtime to really sit and think about things and of course you can talk to the to the guy or girl next to you while you're waiting for that next play to happen but it is very meditative in that regard too yeah it is
1: yeah yeah and again uh that's another instance of baseball being countercultural because we're living in an age when time is precious for so many of us Uh, we have uh, pressing things we need to do we have uh, time constraints and baseball is saying in effect you know set it aside here's a good moment to uh, just uh just just meditate or mindfulness or whatever it might be.
0: (laughs) Well, baseball is considered America's game. I think that if you were to have to uh, re-rank that and come up with a new America's game, it probably is football. And you connect football to the Civil War. Why was the Civil War responsible in helping football to transform from a number of different ruffian sport-like activities uh, that bore a faint resemblance to football?
1: Yeah, football really... Uh, evolves basically from two sports, what we call soccer today and rugby, and so football really takes its uh, present form in the years after the Civil War. And what I try to argue in the in the book is that football was first developed and played by the sons, brothers, and nephews of of Union Army officers from the Civil War, and they did so at uh, major elite northeastern schools, Princeton. Rutgers, Columbia, Harvard, Yale and so forth. So it 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 is was developed in the in the northeast and what i find striking about football is the extent to which it adopts both the language and the strategies of militarism. So you think about the the civil war battles, uh, Manassas and Gettysburg and Antietam and so forth. Uh, all of those battles were about the conquest and the defense of territory. You don't even have to go back that far. Think about the war in Ukraine right Right now. It's all about the conquest and the defense of territory, trying to recover territory that was taken from you. That, that describes a football game. And what's striking to me is the extent to which military rhetoric surrounds the game. Now we think about, for example, the quarterback as the field general. That's sort of the obvious starting point. But he unleashes bullet passes or long bombs in the course of the game. Uh, he's a part of the strategy. He's a strategist for for the for the team. Uh, but also other language training camp, for example, uh, or spring training in in in, in uh, football in baseball rather, but uh, training camp for football. You know that's a military term. Scouting, trying to understand your opponent before the uh, before the uh, strategy is is uh, laid out. Uh, that's very much a, a military terminology. Uh, militarism just pervades the game of football. And it's no accident that it's uh, by far the most violent sport. Um, there are eruptions of violence in hockey, but unlike hockey in football, violence is scripted into, into the game itself. And so in that way, it's it's quite militaristic as well.
0: While brutality is still a descriptor of today's game, it's not nearly as brutal as it was way back when around the Civil War, just after the Civil War. For instance, as you point out in this book, the rules used to allow a player to hit another player three times with a closed fist before he would be ejected. Right. Yikes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and all of these early games, um, I, I I haven't run across an account of an early game that did not use the word brutal or brutality, uh, because uh, these games were really quite, uh, quite physical. And of course, the, there was very little protective gear at that time.
0: So how did football serve as a less lethal continuation of the animosity that existed between the North and South during the Civil War once the game actually made it South following the war?
1: Yeah, that's a great story. Football, as I said, started in the Northeast, and in, in order for it to become uh, the most popular game today, as as you suggested earlier, which it is, it had to move beyond its regional identity in the Northeast. And so when football comes down to the South, pri- principally through uh, Duke University, University of Georgia, Auburn, and of course, the University of Alabama... Southerners begin to identify with the game. And I I think that part of the reason that they were drawn to the game is because the South is really a military culture. Uh, If you look at uh, just the the raw numbers regionally, the people who enlist in the armed forces, even to this day, it's overwhelmingly coming from the South and from the South Atlantic region. And so this is a, a whole region of the country that is very much tied to militarism and and a kind of military ethos and so what happens is that as football comes to the south and southern schools are able to beat northern schools um new york university or penn or princeton or whoever they're playing the that gives the the southerners a sense of satisfaction and i even run ran across some rhetoric which is certainly in the book talking about the southerners really saying that our victory on the gridiron on the football field was a way for us to avenge avenge the losses of the civil war so it allowed them essentially to refight the civil war on the football field and uh, come away with a a win
0: do you say that football's growth can be tied to three r's region so it starts in the northeast and eventually works its way to the rest of the country religion as you mentioned it has protestant origins and eventually other religions do pick up on it the uh, some of what you talked about with catholicism and it uh, becoming popular within that religion i think is well worth the price of admission for people considering purchasing this book but then also race is that third r Interestingly, the NFL, after it was formed, I think there were 13 total African-Americans who took part in the NFL from 1920 to 1933, which shows that the sport was extremely progressive in this regard back then, especially with what the other major professional sports in this country were or were not allowing with regards to African-American participation. So why was there this huge gap from 33 until the end uh, end of World War II where Blacks were no longer allowed to take part in that league.
1: Well, this is uh, an instance of collusion on, part of the, on the part of the owners, uh, especially the owner of the Washington Redskins, but also George Hallis of the Chicago Bears, uh, Mr. Mayor, I've forgotten his first name, uh, of the uh, Giants, the New York Giants. Uh, the owners got together and decided mainly because of George Preston Marshall, the owner of the, at that time, Boston Redskins and later became the Washington Redskins. They decided to bar African American players from playing the game of football. And that, uh, that prohibition remained in effect, as you said, until after World War II. At that point, you're really talking about the second integration of professional football. Kenny Washington is signed by the Los Angeles Rams. And you have once again, the, the beginnings of the integration of football. But uh, again, that's one of the black marks on uh, on uh, team sports, and particularly the National Football League, the prohibition against African American players from 1933 until the end of World War II.
0: Yeah, it took much longer for college football to desegregate. And unfortunately, there are some awful stories along the way. For instance, what happened to Greg Page shortly after he joined the Kentucky Wildcats, becoming the first African-American in Southeastern Conference history?
1: Southeast Conference, I believe that was in 1967. I've forgotten. I I don't have it in front of me. But uh, Greg Page, African-American, is recruited by the University of Kentucky. One of the first practices his teammates pile on. He's paralyzed and he dies 38 days later. Uh, one of the great tragedies. Uh, but there are others as well. Jack Trice, uh, the first African-American athlete at, the, at Iowa State University, uh, was uh, tackled and uh, uh, died uh, in a game against the University of uh, Minnesota up in, uh, in Minneapolis. And probably I think the the most notorious case was Johnny Bright, who was a quarterback for the Drake University Bulldogs. They went down to play what is now Oklahoma State University. At that time, it was called Oklahoma A&M in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And it was an open secret all week on campus that uh, Johnny Bright, who was African-American, who was a favorite for the Heisman Trophy that year, would have been the first African-American to win the Heisman Trophy, uh, it was an open secret on campus that he would not be able, he would not finish the game. And apparently the coach uh, riled up his players with uh, several racist rants. And uh, in the first few plays of the game, Wilbanks Smith, a defensive lineman for Oklahoma State, at that time, Oklahoma A&M, uh, hit bright after he had handed off the ball. And when the game, when the the play was, you know, not not anywhere close to him, and the uh, the final blow uh, took Bright off of his off of his feet. It was so uh, brutal, broke his jaw, and uh, he he could not uh, finish the game. Uh, so that was one of the another one of the rather uh, tawdry chapters in the history of the integration of college football.
0: Yeah, that's pretty awful. To uh, try and end this portion of the conversation on a more positive note, why do you believe that football's ever-increasing popularity is a result of its adaptability?
1: Uh, football has been, I think, quite adaptable in terms of uh, uh, video review, for example. It's probably the game that uh, is most, uh, most employs video review uh, far more than baseball and far earlier than baseball, for example, or hockey. Uh, or, or the other sports. Uh, I think it's it also I think has tried to make some sort of allowance. I think it's probably tardy in doing so, but they're trying to eliminate some of the violence in football. Uh, better protective gear, for example. But it is a violent game still, and I think uh, football has to pay attention to that. But I think they've done much better than hockey, for example. Uh, I, I'm not as much a hockey fan as i am a football fan or or the other sports but it seems to me that if hockey were truly serious about eliminating violence it could do so pretty easily with changes to the rules and enforcement but uh, football is trying to try its best to do that
0: you know it is a, an interesting conversation with hockey which is what we move on to just next hockey and its connection to the formation of the canadian federation in that sports uprising north and then eventually within these borders as well for instance the first ever organized hockey game did include some fights and those fights only intensified in game two as well now invention can happen with different people at similar times randall take edison for instance though many believe That he invented the light bulb that's not necessarily true what edison excelled at was patenting and innovating ideas to make them publicly consumable so who is actually responsible for starting organized hockey
1: for starting i'm sorry
0: organized hockey
1: oh boy (laughs) there's a lot of controversy surrounding that and there's even a, an, uh, an institute called the uh, Institute for International Hockey Research that tries to adjudicate the various claims about who is responsible or who invented hockey. What we do know is that hockey is a direct descendant of lacrosse. So I'm uh, more comfortable talking about lacrosse as the antecedent to hockey, which it certainly is. But uh, ice hockey itself, there are a lot of places that that make it claims for that. Uh, the Dartmouth region of Nova Scotia uh, tries to lay its claim to that. Um, uh, Kingston, Ontario, claims to be the birthplace of, of hockey. I think I say in the book if there's any town in Canada, east of Toronto, that does not claim to be the birthplace of hockey. I want to know about it because the, the most of them make some sort of claim or another. There's even a claim that it began out in the Northwest Territories or even along the Red River in North Dakota, which of course will be heresy to Canadians that uh, hockey actually began in the United States. Uh, so again, there's a lot of controversy about that. But there is little controversy surrounding the fact that hockey is a great is a is a direct descendant of lacrosse which of course originally was an african was a native american game and what i find fascinating about that is the the real uh, canadian progenitor of lacrosse or promoter of lacrosse was a montreal dentist by name of uh, george beers and in 1867 which as you note, was the beginning of the Canadian Confederation, when Canada essentially became independent from Great Britain. Beers argues that Canada needs its own game. Baseball is a US game. Cricket is British, and it's a little bit too finicky for us Canadians. We need a game that reflects the rough and tumble character of the Canadian wilderness. And he's persuaded that Lacrosse is that game. And you know I was I'm always looking in the course of writing the book for religious uh, intersections with these games. Beers, it was a Presbyterian. And the catchphrase for Presbyterians is that they need to do everything decently and in order. Mm-hmm. And so what he brings to Lacrosse is order. So as he's watching these Native Americans play lacrosse or what they call Bagataway up in in, uh, in Canada, he said, it's a great game, but it needs boundaries and we need to limit the number of players on each team. According to Beers, and he was probably exaggerating, uh, there were, were as many as a thousand players on each of these teams that it was he was watching play lacrosse uh, in this sort of unlimited space. Again, I think he's probably exaggerating, but uh, he wants to provide boundaries. He wants to limit the number of players on each team. And this is this is also part of a general evolution that's happening in team sports in the 19th century, away from these mob games that are kind of unruly and, and uh, quite aggressive and unlimited in terms of their space toward more delimited space Uh, limiting the number of players, and that allows for more strategy in each of these games.
0: Well, and plus the problem with making lacrosse Canada's national sport is you need to try and cater whatever that sport ends up being to the conditions that you're dealing with for a majority of the year. Anybody who has been... I don't know, even to Chicago or Minneapolis, St. Paul knows how long it stays cold there. So (laughs) the window with which you could play lacrosse up in Canada is a pretty small one, which is, uh, I guess, why they needed to find something that you could actually play in the snow with frozen ponds and lakes and whatnot.
1: That's right. And that's, of course, uh, which also reflects, again, uh, the Canadian geography, you know, this vast wilderness, uh, vast frozen wilderness and uh, hockey is a way to kind of uh, tame it or at least to... uh, uh, to accommodate to to the to the ice and the cold
0: so my uh, favorite tidbit that ties the founding and evolution of a sport to religion does come with hockey and that has to do with uh, the evolution of penalties in hockey. Now, initially, guys were just fined after the game, but eventually they realized fines weren't doing a whole lot to discourage these guys from beating the hell out of one another. So what is the religious affiliation <laughs> with the advent of the penalty box, Randall?
1: Well, I think, I, I uh, to be honest, Trey, I, 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 I wish I had more solid historical evidence for saying this, but what strikes me about And I couldn't find it. I tried to find it, but I couldn't. But what strikes me is that as Irish Canadians and French Canadians start playing the game of hockey, both of them Catholic, of course, overwhelmingly Catholic, this is when you have the introduction of the penalty box. So you move away from, you know, these sort of parking ticket kind of fines for violent or rough behavior in hockey, toward the penalty box, which strikes me as very much similar to a Catholic confessional. And in many ways, it also combines both Protestant and Catholic deterrence. That is, you have the confessional, uh, the place is set aside from the uh, arena itself or from the rink itself, where the player can go and and think about and and contemplate his uh, infraction. Players call it the sin bin, for example. But it also is very public, which is the Protestant deterrent to aberrant behavior. I remember the Puritans putting uh, the uh, the criminal or the uh, the the offender in stocks on the village green, so everybody could see that this person was being punished for his uh, waywardness. So in many ways, the confessional or I'm sorry, the penalty box is both a confessional and this sort of public place where the player becomes penitent or at least is supposed to become penitent for engaging in this uh, aberrant behavior.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it does not always work, which is evident. (laughs) All right. The final sport is basketball, which does deal with the urbanization of America and just uh, many flocking to the city uh, in the 1800s and the early 1900s and beyond. What does a game called Duck on a Rock have to do with Dr. James Naismith inventing basketball? (laughs)
1: <laughs> duck on a rock was a play, a game that uh, James Na- Naismith played as he was growing up in rural Ontario, and the game doesn't sound terribly sophisticated to me. But as I understand it from reading about it, uh, there would be uh, the, the 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 children would put a, a rock on top of a, a larger uh, rock, and the idea would be to dislodge the rock or the duck from the pedestal on, uh, on which it was sitting. And uh, one player would be assigned to, uh, to guard the, the duck. Well, when uh, Naismith, after he had completed his studies at McGill University, was studying at the YMCA training school in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is now Springfield College, he was challenged by his instructor to invent a game that could be played by young men between the baseball season and the football season. The idea was to keep them occupied and out of trouble. So uh, Naismith kind of uh, tries various things, nothing really comes to mind until he decides to ask the custodian at the YMCA training school for a couple of peach baskets. And he decides to hang the baskets on either side of the gymnasium. He wants them 10 feet off the floor so that that would eliminate some of the violence that would be associated, of course, with both uh, hockey and and with football. And so he, he does that. And... This becomes the basis for the game of basketball, uh, and I think basketball is the quintessential urban game. First of all, it was invented at a time, as you said, when Americans North Americans are flocking to the cities in huge, huge numbers. I don't have the figures in front of me, but if you look at the growth in population in the cities in the last decade of the twentieth 19th century and in the initial decades of the 20th century. It's a, just a huge surge of, of North Americans going to the cities. And basketball, I think, is the quintessential urban game because it replicates life in the cities, because the object is to move from one place to another without impeding the progress of others. The analogy I use is Fifth Avenue at lunch hour or... Michigan Avenue at Rush hour or Times Square in the evening, where you have this mass of humanity, and the idea is you have to try to weave your way among a lot of different people once again, the early days of basketball, I ran across references to basketball being played with fifty five zero players on a team. You can imagine the challenge of doing that. And again, as basketball begins to develop, it moves away from the sort of mob game mentality toward uh, more skilled players, fewer players, more skilled players playing on this, the basketball court.
0: That's a lot to think about with today's court dimensions, but I think you even said that the gymnasiums that they were playing in were half the size of today's courts, too. Exactly,
1: exactly. So you can imagine the chaos and the mayhem in the early days of basketball, but Naismith was clear that violence was not part of the game.
0: (laughs) How was there also international appeal to the game from its beginnings, something that's obviously continued over time?
1: It has. And, and I think there are a lot of uh, conduits for that. But the main thing was that uh, the students at the YMCA training school, which is now Springfield College, they began fanning out across North America and the world. And they became uh, directors of YMCAs as the YMCA began to expand. And so they introduced that game uh, to to the, these various YMCAs. Also, of course, you have the, the military, um, U.S. military, uh, stationed in various places that would play basketball and teach it to to others. And uh, basketball, of course, is very popular also on Indian reservations. So it's not only the cities. It has other places where it's it's quite uh, prominent as well. But again, it's uh, principally an urban game.
0: And how did Naismith believe the sport benefited those who played it?
1: He thought that basketball was really sort of the... the um, Culmination of athletic development. That is, uh, you have uh, individuals who were athletic in other ways, but the sort of agility that was necessary to play the game of basketball really was a step beyond, for example, the violence of football and so forth. In in Naismith's understanding of of the game, but he also thought it developed a certain sort of moral characteristics as well. You know, fortitude and patience and these other virtues that really, when you think about it, were part of success in the urban culture as well. And Naismith thought that basketball was good preparation for urban life.
0: And was basketball the most progressive of these four sports in terms of the complete integration of non-whites into the sport itself, considering the YMCA connection too? Uh,
1: it did at the YMCA level, less so, I think, at the college and the professional levels. The professional level is not really not really uh, integrated until after the whole Harlem Globetrotters defeat the Minneapolis Lakers including George Mikan the one of the great players in the history of, of the NBA uh, after the Globetrotters beat the Lakers in an exhibition in Chicago that uh, really kind of accelerates the process of desegregation in the NBA The first college team, uh, or first integration of college team, uh, occurred down in North Carolina between the Duke Medical Students team, which was the best team in the area, and the uh, North Carolina, I forget the name of the school, but it was coached by... One of Naismith's protégés.
0: Yeah, at Kansas, and I'm forgetting his name right yeah, now. Yeah, McClennan,
1: John McClennan. I think that's it, John McClennan. Yeah. And 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 he, he became a very successful coach, actually the first African-American coach in the professional league as well. And uh, there, but anyway, the first uh, integrated game is uh, down a secret game that t- takes place in North Carolina between Duke and McClennan's uh, team. Uh,
0: and I believe you said he was really instrumental in employing an up tempo pace on both ends of the floor, which is something that Naismith had communicated to him at some point during their time in Lawrence together. That he ultimately it, wanted to see basketball played at a faster pace than it was at that point in time.
1: That, that's right, exactly. And and uh, he and Naismith were became really close friends in part because. Uh, uh, McLennan was not allowed to play on the uh, Kansas University team because it was coached by Adolph Rupp and he insisted on an all-white team. And at that point, then McLennan becomes uh, very good friends with uh, Naismith and Naismith really um, is a a mentor to him uh, at the beginnings of his uh, coaching career.
0: As I always say, Randall, you can't trust a guy named Adolph. All right, last question now. Uh, this is more of a general question than one specific to any of the four sports that we've been discussing. An often translated and paraphrased quote from Karl Marx is that religion is the opiate of the masses. <laughs> does sports serve as a modern opiate of the masses? Well, I think
1: there's probably an argument to, to say that it, they, it, that it does. That sports does provide that sort of uh, relay, uh, release or escape. Uh, I think... That you know, there are other elements of of that question in terms of how many how sports provides uh, a, an alternate universe as i I write in the book, and I think that's part of the attraction of sports. But it's also striking to me how sports often provides a kind of uh, uh, beginning for other social changes. Uh, you know the great example that comes to mind is Jackie Robinson desegregating the major leagues on April 15, 1947. That's more than a year before Harry Truman desegregated the US Armed Forces. So there's an example of how sports really provides a sort of uh, groundbreaking entree into other social changes. Now, no one would argue that baseball should have been desegregated much, much earlier given the success of various Negro League players, for example. Uh, And football, of course, as we said, had that great hiccup between 1933 and and, and the end of Civil War when uh, it was not integrated. But uh, uh, sports, I think, provides a a real um, avenue for for change more broadly within the society. Um, I also pointed out in the book that a lot of white fans, first of all, are cheering for athletes of color as long as they're on the field or on the basketball court. And once they move out of their lane, so to speak, and begin to speak about other issues within society, uh, a lot of white players, uh, a lot, of, a lot of white fans, uh, start to uh, abandon these athletes of color. You have the Colin Kaepernick situation, of course, being probably the best example of that in recent years. Uh, So I think sports is probably neither entirely good nor entirely bad, but is it an opiate of the people? It might be. I think it might uh, keep some people from uh, expressing their uh, dissatisfaction or their dissent uh, in other ways. And in that sense, I think it's probably not a bad thing.
0: He is Randall Ballmer. The new book is Passion Plays, How Religion-Shaped Sports in North America. Randall, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book.
1: Thank you, Trey. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.